Christ, the true light who enlightens and sanctifies every person coming into the world, let the light of your countenance shine upon us that we may see your unapproachable light and guide our steps in the way of your commandments through the intercessions of your all-holy mother and of all the saints. Amen. So I have the easy part, which is, uh, first of all, to thank those of you who have come, and in advance, those who will be coming tomorrow, but especially to thank those who have helped to make all of this happen. Our speaker, who we all know well, Sylvia Taylor, who has done so much for this retreat, and Jennifer Rich, who has, and Lois Russo, and many other people that I could list as well. But many of you are, are hidden in the ways that you have helped with this. So thank you very much for all of the work that you have done to make this happen. Um, as I said, my part is easy. I just say a prayer. Now I will invite someone up for the harder part, which is introducing so well-known a speaker as this. So Jennifer Rich, if you would come up and introduce our speaker this evening. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. I'd like to introduce Frederica Matthews Green. Many of us have loved her over the years and through her books and articles and podcasts. It's an honor to have her with us this weekend at St. John the Baptist for our fall retreat. Frederica has published 10 books and has appeared as a speaker over 600 times. She has three children, a priest, a pastor, and a subdeacon, 14 grandchildren, and the oldest of which is attending seminary now. And she lives with her husband, Father Gregory Matthews Green, in Johnson City, Tennessee. I met Frederica at a writer's retreat at a beautiful farm in Vermont in 2017. She's been a huge influence in my life and also so generous in helping me to publish my own first book. We stayed with the Beckers and Eugene last night after she spoke at St. George, and then getting to drive her up through the Willamette Valley this morning was a nice two-hour break from talking and, and thinking, and we just were driving along with the beautiful green and the sun and the sheep. But my heart was so filled with joy to be in her presence, just driving without talking for a couple of hours. It felt like a little taste of the kingdom of heaven on the road to encourage the faithful, like a modern-day apostle <laughs> going from place to place. After this, we're going to the monastery in Goldendale, and then she'll speak in Wenatchee the next day, and then um, she'll fly home shortly after. Frederica has devoted her life to educating those around her in truth, strengthening her followers in faith, inspiring us through her poignant and well-crafted words to become more and more women of God, women of God, and men of God who can turn our hearts to God. Welcome, Frederica. Hello, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, uh, how's that? I think we're okay. I don't want to blast you out of here. It is lovely to be here. This is such a beautiful part of the country, and um, it was indeed beautiful driving down to Eugene last night and up again um, this morning, and the green, the colors, it just seems like a more brilliant 
shade of green than I'm used to seeing um, in the, over in the, the east part of America. So I'm very glad not only to be here, but to be here at this time of year. Um, so tonight I was going to talk about, I guess what, uh, as Protestants, we call your, your testimony. You know, everybody has their testimony of how they came to the Lord, how they came to faith. And this will take us from me being, uh, um, you know, in high school and college into Eastern religions and then into Western Christianity and then into Eastern Christianity. So there's, a, there's some, you know, traveling going on here, sort of like us in that little blue Prius today, traveling up and down the interstate. Um, and I found my home in, in Orthodoxy in 1993. And what a, what a joy that has been, a continual sense of growing in the Lord and knowing Him more and more. It's everything that I hoped for as a Protestant but didn't know how to, how to reach, how to lay my hands on. And uh, the truth of being able to know the Lord Jesus is, that's really what orthodoxy is. It's, it's a way to get to know the Lord better. So I'm so glad the Lord uh, finally brought me to this church. Um, I want to start out by telling you a story about something that happened a long time ago, 20 years ago, when my book Facing East had just come out. And um, there was a TV station wanted to do an interview with me. So the TV host was in my, in my house in the living room. And we were sitting with the, um, they have the setup where there's a TV camera over each shoulder. And that way they get video of both faces and they can cut it together. So I was talking to him and he asked me, why do people convert to the Orthodox Church? And I thought, um, you know, it, it's a different reason for a different person. It's not only one reason. So I said, I, I think many converts come out of evangelical Protestantism. And for them, uh, the big appeal is the liturgy. They just haven't seen liturgical worship before. And the beauty of the liturgy is what draws them. But in our case, I said, that wasn't what drew us. That we were, um, after, you know, something of a journey, we had wound up being high church Episcopalians. So we had liturgy. We already knew about that. In our little church, we were, you know, singing hymns to the Virgin Mary Theotokos, and we had candles and incense and chant and all of that. So that wasn't the thing that drew us. What, what attracted us was that we saw our church was beginning to discard portions of the creed, and bishops were saying Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, and he wasn't really born of a virgin, and he didn't really do any miracles. So because we had kids that were 11, 12, 13, up to 15 years old, we wanted to be in a church that would keep them in the original Nicene Christian faith. So for us, it wasn't the liturgy. It was stability, theological stability, was what we were looking for. I've, I've known other people that weren't Christians at all, and they were spiritual seekers, and in their journeys, they looked into the wisdom of ancient Christianity, and that pulled them in. I, for anyone, it can just be the beauty, just the beauty of our worship, the iconography, the chant. Um, it's a you know, multi-sensory experience to come to worship, something you don't get in most other churches. So I said, there are all these different reasons that people might come from different directions. But I think the one thing that unites us all is in Orthodoxy, we found truth. We found truth here. 
And his face changed and, and looked a little bit shocked and displeased. And he said, well, you can say that it's true for you, but how can you say that it's true for everybody? And this is a question that Christians get asked sometimes. Maybe it's true for you, for your personal faith, but how can you make a claim that Jesus Christ is the truth for everyone in a cosmological sense, that he is the truth? How can you make that claim? So I've had to think about that, and um, I thought, well, how is Christianity different from other religions? What, makes, what sets us apart that we could make a claim like this? And I could see that most <clears throat> other religions, some of them are about a code of law, um, like Judaism, you know, that God handed down the tablets to Moses on the mountain. Or Islam is, you know, primarily it's the backbone of it is a, a code of law that is believed to be granted to the people in a miraculous way. Um, others are about a philosophy, really. It's a way of looking at life, or a way of understanding the, the mysteries, the cycles of life, the meaning of suffering. It's sort of a take on that, a way of approaching that mystery, how to live into that. Um, some are really about mystical experience, about experiencing, you know, the presence of the gods or the spirits or whatever it is they're trying to seek. Christianity is different because it's about an event in history. It's something that we claim actually happened in human time, in human history. It's about facts and events and lives and personalities, that Jesus became a human being like, like all of us, that he was born, that he died, and that he rose again, as we hope to rise again one day, and that all of this happened at a definite time and place, that it is perhaps not as shocking to us as it should be that we say these things happened under Pontius Pilate. Um, that is like naming, you know, under, you know, uh, Herbert Hoover. It's like naming a ruler at a certain time. Um, Christians take a big chance when they step out like that and say, this happened in the common timeline of history that we all share. Whether you know about it or not, it's still true. It's like the claim that um, George Washington was the first president of the United States, that even if you've never heard of the United States, it's still true for you that, Jesus, that uh, George Washington was the first president. And Either you believe that this happened, that this really happened in time. We all have to take it on faith that George Washington was the first president. We weren't there, we didn't see it. But we believe that the sources are trustworthy and we all believe that this is true. Um, we believe that this particular truth about Jesus Christ is so true that it alters the baseline of all reality for all human life, for the universe itself, for the life of every single person. We believe that this truth is so momentous that it affects the very roots of humanity and it affects every life. Whether a person has ever heard of Jesus Christ or not, it is still true for them. And St. Paul said that if this is not true, how disastrous that is, it means that our faith is futile. If this thing we have believed that is so daring is not true, then the dead are going to stay dead. And Christians are actually telling lies about God, if this is not true. Everything hangs on 
whether the Christian claims about what Jesus did and who he was, whether that is true or not. It all hangs on that, that claim that it is true for everyone. Um, St. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 13, if this is not true, then, quote, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Christians deserve to be, are the most pitiable of people if we believe this, and it isn't true. So that's a very great, a very daring claim that we are making, that Christian faith is true for everybody, not just true for, for those of us who happen to agree about it. That's what makes our faith different. Christianity is worked out in the dust of, of the earth. It's worked out in specific human lives, particular people, like all these faces that we see on the walls around us, all these men and women of holiness, particular lives over and over again. It's not just a theory that we think is true. Christianity is worked out in the dust of this earth. And that is why human lives are so precious in Christian faith. That's why every person is so infinitely valuable. It's why we have the icons of the saints and read their lives and sing troparia to them every time we get together. Because of the nitty-gritty way our faith is, is worked out and shown in individual human lives. You can think of it as being like, um, I picture the, the Holy Spirit, a wind, as Jesus said. It's like the wind blows. You can see that the grains of wheat are bowing down their heads, but you can't see the wind. Um, you can see it being worked out in the lives of individual human beings, like a rushing wind that is, that is coursing all through history, touching people, touching all these different people on the head and filling them with the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can look back through history and you can see it. And you can look at the present time and see that you are the current generation living in the coursing breath of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is blowing through our time. We are the stalks of wheat that bow down our heads in worship as the Holy Spirit courses over us and gives us his life. We are the current generation of so many previous generations that are alive with the wind, the breath of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the saints, you are contained within that, that, that category. You are called to be a saint. This is your chance. You're living your life right now. This is the time that you can become a saint, just like the saints that are on the walls here. You are in, that, in the path of that wind, being illuminated and brought to life. Your life is the newest chapter in the Bible. I like to imagine that um, when we get to heaven, there will be the Bible that contains all the stories that have happened throughout the course of church history. And all the little stories of the little people that weren't famous, but they did something that was so kind or so brave or so generous. All those stories will be there in this infinite Bible, and we will have all of eternity to learn each other's stories and to hear each other's stories. Um, I was going to uh, tell, <clears throat> I want to tell the story of my own life just to share my story, but it is not a story that makes me look good. Um, God had to overcome a lot in me. This is really a story about God's sovereignty and about his ability to reach into the life of even someone who is very unwilling, his ability to overcome sin and resistance 
and this unending love because I am a, re a recipient of so much more love than I deserve. All of us are, but I was somebody who went out of my way to reject the Lord. Um, I was raised in Charleston, South Carolina, beautiful city, uh, in a household that wasn't very religious. My father was a nominal Roman Catholic, so we went to church all the times so that you were required to go to church, but we didn't even say grace over meals. There wasn't really another prayer or talk about faith in our household. And when I got into my teens, I reacted against Christian faith. I decided that it was a pretty stupid religion and that it was ridiculous to believe that God could become a human being or the, the story about the virgin birth or the resurrection. I decided that none of that could possibly be true. That didn't make any sense. And then I was kind of angry because I felt like I got sold a bill of goods, you know. Um, that I bought into this story, this stupid story, and I felt like I had made a fool of myself by ever believing it. So I had a real hostility to Christian faith. It's something that I've noticed, and, and I don't have a theory on why this is the case, but that oftentimes ex-Catholics are bitter about their faith in a way that ex-Baptists are not. And I don't know why ex-Methodists are not deeply bitter like ex-Catholics can be. I don't know what, what the reason is for that, but uh, I was one of those bitter ex-Catholics at the age of like 14 and thought that I knew everything and thought I was smarter than everybody. So I started in high school, I began just exploring other religions. And I was, um, it largely had to do with what boy I had a crush on at the time. And so I started going to the Unitarian Church because there was a really cute guy who went to the Unitarian Church and uh, went on you know, to high school and into college and exploring all these different religions. Um, Meher Baba, the Indian guru, whom I bet nobody has ever heard of Meher Baba, but you all know the saying that he is most famous for. Meher Baba's most famous quote is, don't worry, be happy. So that's where that comes from. If you under, ever wondered where that profound, you know, gem of wisdom came from, that's <laughs> Mayor Baba. <laughs> you can't thank him for that. <laughs> um, so a little bit of that, a little, you know, Zen Buddhism and Ananda Marga Buddhism and Hare Krishna and Transcendental Meditation. I never did get really pulled deeply into any of them. It was always like going around the food court and just sampling a little bit of this, a little bit of that. If you had asked me, I would have said, I believe that the God is the life force, that the fact that we are alive and that we breathe and we move, that the energy that courses through our bodies, that that is what God is. And so that was my own personal definition. And I thought, um, you know, people all over the world, they make up mythology to help them cope with the fact that there's no, not really a face to, the, um, to the, the life force or the energy, and so they make up these stories that are comforting to them, but that is what it really was just at its core. It was just energy, biological energy. And I, as I said, I was delighting in going around the food court and sampling all these different religions. I would have said I believed all religions were equal, but it wasn't true. I didn't believe that about Christianity. I continued to have this kind of resentment 
toward Christian faith and to think that it was a stupid religion, that it was a childish religion, and it wasn't really on the same level with all these other Eastern religions that I was learning about. I, I think the, um, the problem there is that most of us learn about Christianity when we're children, and so we're taught a child-sized version of it. And then we learn about other religions when we're adults, and we can see, oh, this is so grown up, and this is so profound, and this is so complex. And we don't know that Christianity is even more profound, but we kind of get stuck with that child-sized version of it that we learn when we're very little. So I think that's where my fallacy came in, that I thought Christianity wasn't as developed or as beautiful or deep as all these other religions. Um, so by the time I was in college, I was actively arguing against the Christians that I met, and I would try to chip away at their faith and induce them to doubt their faith and tell them that, you know, well, you say Jesus died and rose again, but there have always been religions that claim that their God has died and risen again. That's just a common thing. Um, C.S. Lewis said, yes, that's God giving other peoples all through time, giving them good dreams, good dreams, so they could envision this thing that would come true in Jesus. Um, anyway, I did what I could to try to undermine the faith of other Christians that I met on campus. <clears throat> so I like to, to argue, and really nobody could get through to me. If, you know, somebody trying to witness to me or convince me out of the Bible of something, they, they wouldn't stand a chance because I really enjoyed just being an obnoxious Christian hater. <laughs> So um, <clears throat> if God was going to reach me, he was not going to be able to reach me by somebody handing me a tract with the four spiritual laws. Who here knows the four spiritual laws? Some of you do. That's a, like a deep Protestant evangelical thing. Um, I just had contempt for all of that. So God had to sneak up on me <clears throat> by kind of doing things that caught me off balance and were confusing, really, so that I was like, what, what is that? I don't understand that. Um, I, was, uh, I was, probably my real religion was feminism. I, back when they called it women's lib, I was like one of the leading first feminist women's livers on my college campus. And uh, on the campus, they were building a new library, and they, there was a wall around the, the construction site. So I'd finished painting my apartment, and I came down with a, a little can of green paint, and I painted a big women's symbol on it, you know, this circle with the cross underneath, and then a fist in the middle, and that was the symbol of the women's liberation movement, the women's symbol with the fist in the middle. And I wrote over the top, uh, sisterhood is powerful, which was our slogan at the time. And I, <clears throat> I'd finished painting it, and I was just standing there kind of you know, admiring my work. It was uh, late afternoon, not quite dusk, and the campus seemed strangely deserted. There really weren't any other students around, which is kind of odd. And there was a young man walking up the hill alongside the, the library site coming toward me. I didn't know him. I didn't know who he was. He looked like a student. He came up, and when he came to me, instead of just walking on past, he turned and he looked at what I, what I painted there, and he said, this is not important. 
this is not very important. And he pointed at it, and then he pointed at me, and he said, but there is something that is very important, and you're going to find out what it is. And then he just walked on, leaving me with my paintbrush dripping down into the street and thinking, what was that? What was that about? This is the most important thing there ever was, revolution and women's liberation. This is the important thing. What is he talking about? I have no idea what he means. It was just a little bit unsettling to me. It was like there's more out there than I know. There's, there's mysteries that I haven't even envisioned yet. So it kind of knocked me off balance a little bit. Um, I, I met this really cute guy that I had a crush on whose name was Gary Matthews. And now he's Father Gregory Matthews Green. I was Frederica Green. On our first date, he said, I am such a feminist that if I ever get married, I want to hyphenate my wife's surname to my name. And I was like, be still my heart. <laughs> this could be the one. <laughs> it was like the, the perfect thing to say to impress me. So um, I was the kind of hippie that was a um, Mother Earth feminist, you know, spiritual seeker kind of hippie. He was more a political SDS kind of hippie. Um, but an atheist, and not a seeker like I was, like a contented atheist. He wasn't really exploring. I, you know, I say seeker, but I think in my case, and for many people who claim to be seekers, they're not actually seeking anything. They weren't expecting, I wasn't expecting, I didn't want to ever arrive at a destination. I was just exploring. I just wanted to go on exploring forever, so I wasn't really a seeker. Um, but he had, my husband had a favorite professor. He took every course that he had, philosophy professor. And he was down to the last one, his last semester, and it was philosophy of religion. So right at the beginning of this class, the, um, <clears throat> the professor said, in this semester, we're going to be dealing with original documents, original texts. So before you come back next week, read one of the gospels. I want you to have read a gospel. So he found a Bible somewhere, and he discovered that there were four Gospels, and that the shortest one was Mark. So, so he thought, that's the one I'm going to read. So he began reading the Gospel of Mark, and there was something about it that got his attention. Um, he, you know, my Christian friends kept saying, just read the Bible, and it'll convince you. And I read the Bible, and I thought, huh, you know, of course, Christians wrote this. It's going to agree with what they say. The Bible had no impact on me, but the Gospel of Mark had a strange kind of impact on my husband-to-be, and as he read it, he kept saying, there's something about Jesus. There's just something about him. It's like I can tell that what he's saying is the truth. What he says is true. And Jesus seems to think that there is a God, so I'm going to have to rethink my atheism. And I was very alarmed at this, and I said, you're not going to become one of those Jesus freaks, are you? And started getting out all my anti-Christian arguments. And he said, no, 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 I just want to, it's just intriguing, I just want to study this some more. And just to jump ahead to that part of the story, uh, he was going to graduate with a bachelor's degree in history and um, needed to think of something else that he was going to do next in his life. 
And he decided he wanted to just go on studying theology, went to seminary without planning to be a pastor. It was like seminary's graduate school if you want to learn more about Jesus. So that was how the next step of our journey went on. Um, but at that time, I was just very alarmed that he was reading Mark and thinking that there was something interesting about Jesus. But he was saying, no, no. It was just like an intellectual pursuit at that point. Even going to seminary was just the intellectual interest in exploring theology. Um, another thing that happened, um, we were planning our wedding. And uh, we were married out in the woods. Uh, with uh, I, My dress was just... Um, unbleached muslin. We had a vegetarian reception. It was just a hippie wedding from beginning to end. And uh, one thing that um, we wanted to do when we were planning our wedding, we had a friend who was an Episcopal priest, and he said that he would do the service for us. So we met with him, and we said, we want to write our own vows. And he said, no, I, I'm not allowed to do that then. Um, if you want me to do the wedding, you have to pick one of the Episcopal services. But he said there's some new experimental services, and you might find something you like, and we did. But he said something to me that, uh, again, it was very arresting. Um, he said, you're going around picking and choosing little bits from all the different religious traditions that there are. And I was. I was like building the Frederica's favorite hits, religion. It was you know, all the little bits that I like from everywhere. And he said, if you go on doing that, you're never going to grow, that you're only able to choose the things that you already understand. You're only able to like the things that already make sense to you. Um, you will just end up confirming yourself exactly as you are now. If you want to actually grow spiritually, you should choose one of the great traditions, one of the great world religions, and throw yourself into it and accept the things you like with the things you don't like and the things you understand with the things you don't understand and just let it go to work on you. Just trust that there is greater wisdom out there than what's contained in your own little head. And you've kind of got to throw yourself in the deep end and just, just take it as it is if you ever want to grow. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I decided I would be a Hindu. <laughs> um, as as he was a priest, it kind of would have been nice if he'd recommended Christianity, but maybe he knew very well that I wasn't open to that. So I decided to choose Hinduism because it was mystical and because it had um, a lot of myth, a lot of myths, a lot of mythos, a lot of stories about gods with blue skin and you know all kinds of stuff. And I thought this is so superior to Christianity because in Hinduism they don't claim, they don't try to claim that all these stories are true. You know, they know that it's just legend. It's just sort of something to meditate on. And Christianity isn't mature enough to actually admit that it's all just legends. It's not really, not really true. So at our wedding, I recited a Hindu prayer about halfway through. And we set off for Europe. We'd saved up enough money that we could spend um, almost three months in Europe if we hitchhiked everywhere and we basically didn't eat. <laughs> we stayed in the cheapest places, and we just ate like a chunk of bread and cheese every day and could just stretch out the days to that extent, as long as we did everything totally cheaply. <clears throat> so we arrived in, um, arrived in Dublin, and, and now I'll start getting really specific. 
It was June the 20th, 1974. We'd been married about a month at that point. And, uh, you know, hitchhiked into town and found a bed and breakfast and put down our backpacks and went outside just to see if there was anything still open at that time of day, if there were any museums or historic sites or something like that. And there was a church. So we went inside. Um, there was not a service going on. We just went in and we kind of wandered off in opposite directions and we're looking at the, the architecture and the windows and the, you know, all the kinds of things you look at if you're looking at a church as if it's an art exhibit. And there was a very big central altar and then on the sides there were two smaller side altars. I went off toward the one on the right and it had a statue of Jesus on it. It was a, the statue <clears throat> that you've all seen, even if you don't know the name of it. It's called the Sacred Heart. And this is a, um, a vision Jesus appeared to a Belgian nun in the 18th century. And she could see his heart exposed on his chest with thorns wrapped around it and flames springing out of the top. And he said to her, Behold the heart that has so loved mankind. So you can picture this now. This is a very common Catholic image, the sacred heart of Jesus. <clears throat> so there's this white marble statue, and I was just standing there looking at it and kind of assessing it as a work of art, you know, and critiquing it. And then I realized that I had fallen to my knees, and I could hear a voice inside speaking to me. It wasn't a voice that I heard with my ears. It was an interior voice. It was like there had always been a radio in my heart, a little radio, and I never knew it was there. And at this morning, at this moment, it just snapped on, and this voice was filling my awareness. And the voice said, I am your life. It said, you think that your life is your name and your personality and your history. But that is not your life. I am your life. Beyond that, you think that your life is the life force and that you participate in the life force just by being alive. That is not your life. I am your life. I am the foundation of everything else in your life. <clears throat> It was um, scary. It was scary to me. Nothing like that had ever happened to me. I could, all of a sudden, it was like this voice took over the airwaves inside. And I could tell, I knew it was Jesus. I knew that it was speaking to me in this very direct and personal way. And yet I didn't know how it was possible for that to happen. And if you had stopped me on the way into the church and said, what do you think about Jesus? I would say, he probably never existed. Um, people who are weak make up stories like themselves, like this so they can comfort themselves. And I would have dismissed the whole thing. And there he was speaking to me. I knew that the resurrection must be true because even if he was killed, even if he ever lived, if he was killed, if he died, he had to rise again because he was alive and speaking to me right then. And I knew that he knew me. I knew that he knew me in a deep and profound and, 
absolutely thorough way, better than I knew myself. And I knew that he was my Lord, that perhaps he had always been my Lord, and I just had been running away from him. So I, I felt very shaken, and I stood up, and I was you know, like still kind of vibrating and afraid and wondering what was going to happen next. And um, I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't even tell my husband that it had happened for a whole week. I, I just was like, what was that? I just felt so weird about it. So it was about a week later, and that by this point we had like hitchhiked all the way around through the south of Ireland and we're heading back north again to Dublin. And standing by the side of the road, I, I said, Honey, you remember last week when we were in Dublin? And you remember that church? And you remember that, that statue? And I started telling him the story, and I was like really you know, shaky about it. And he said, It'll pass. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, here we are 45 years later, but <laughs> it didn't pass. That reminds me of the time I, I was going through some old file folders, and I found one in his handwriting. It said, orthodoxy. You know, like everything that he was ever going to need to know about orthodoxy would be contained in this one little file folder. <laughs> so we didn't... We didn't know what to make of it. Um, I felt like I need to read the Bible. I need to know who this guy is if he's taking over. And so I, I, got, a, I got a Bible, and I started at the beginning of Matthew, and I started reading it. And I just, there were things Jesus said that I just didn't agree with, and I thought were totally misguided or ill-advised. And there was just a lot that Jesus was going on about that I thought just was rude, or you know, I, I got to the, um, the the Syrophoenician woman when she says, "Jesus, heal my daughter," and he just dismisses her. And I got so mad that I like closed the Bible and stuffed it to the bottom of my backpack. And I was like, "I'm not going to read that anymore. That's just terrible." But <laughs> but I ended up having to take it out again because what what else did I have? You know, what else did I have? I had to deal with Jesus. I had to deal with the Jesus that is reported in the Gospels, because I had no other way to know him. Um, it was like the first time that I was really having to uh, do what that priest had said before we were married. I was having to bend myself to a faith that was larger than mine and let it affect me and let it teach me. I had to admit that I didn't know everything. You know, I thought I knew everything. I was 21 years old. You know? <laughs> I had to admit that I, I, I didn't know anything, and it was just time for me to sit down and shut up and just listen. And uh, I think that, by the way, was a, a bigger miracle than the feeding of the 5,000, <laughs> making me a teachable person. <laughs> so we, um, there was a lot of work still to do. Um, we were still both like totally liberal theologically. I still would have said, oh, all the religions are alike, they're all the same, they're all equal, it doesn't matter which one. It's just like, now I'm going to change horses from Hinduism to Christianity. Um, it took us another year or so, and thank God we met Christian friends who were able to like direct us to the Nicene Creed and give us some teaching and help us understand the scriptures. So it took us a while, really, to get on board. And uh, as I was saying, that was my husband's idea when we were, were heading off to seminary. It was just, you know, learn more about Jesus. 
It was the liberal German theologians, the um, Bultmanns, the, the, the theologians that were demythologizing everything and saying, kind of like the, the Jesus seminar. You know, he didn't do any miracles, he didn't rise from the dead, but maybe these few sayings are authentic sayings of his. That like opened a door that my husband was able to walk through, and then he was able to just keep going until he got to the classic faith. Um, so in a way, we have to give some credit to the liberal theologians because he would, never would have listened to a conservative at that time. So God can use anything he wants as you know, with Balaam's donkey, he can, you know, talk through a donkey if he needs to. So there was still a lot of work for us to do. Um, but we were at the beginning of our journey there. Um, so that takes me from, like, Eastern religions to Western Christianity. At that point, we became Episcopalian, because that was the tradition that my husband had grown up in. Um, <clears throat> but before I go on to talk about that, you know, we were Episcopalian, then Orthodox, I, there are two points that I wanted to make. Sometimes when I tell this story, people come up to me afterwards and say, um, God must really love you because he did this for you. God doesn't love me that way because nothing like this has ever happened to me. And what I want to tell you is from my perspective, how blessed you are that you have been faithful all your life. That you did not wound the heart of God like I did, that you don't have on your conscience the blasphemies, the contempt. I was like the, the soldier spitting at Christ. I had total contempt for him and for the faith that he, that he founded and taught. Um, if, if you have been a faithful churchgoer all these years without you know, having something really exciting and mystical happen to you, God bless you. God had to use dramatic um, means with me because I was so fortified. Uh, nobody could have said anything to me that would have gotten through. There's that old joke about the, um, the farmer has a donkey and he's talking about what a great donkey is, trying to sell it. And then, but before you do anything, you have to hit the donkey with a two by four just to get its attention. And um, God has not had to use a two by four on you. Um, he had to use it on me. You can reason back from the size of the two-by-four to the size of the donkey that he was dealing with in this particular instance. If, if you have not grieved the Lord as I did, if you have served him in humility and simplicity, blessed are you. Great is your reward in heaven. It, it, the Lord loves those who serve him and who love him. If you haven't had to, push God to this extent that he had to do something that dramatic, then that's because your life has been an offering to him all these years. And it is because of faithful Christians like you that the church is here. It is because of faithful Christians that on a Sunday morning, somebody comes in and unlocks the doors and turns on the light and plugs in the coffee pot so that when someone like me, who has resisted and insulted the Lord and rejected him. When someone like me finally turns around and they walk in those doors, it is thanks to you that the lights are on and that there's going to be a cup of coffee and that there'll be somebody to say, stand here by me, I'll help you understand the service as we go through it. 
there are people right here in Portland tonight that the Lord is going to hit with a two-by-four this year. And hopefully some of them will walk through that door. And they will come, and you will be there in your faithfulness, in your long-term stubborn faithfulness. You will be there. You will have this church open for those when, like me, they're finally tired of blaspheming the Lord that you love and that you honor when they finally are repentant. Thanks to you, the church is here. The church exists because of people like you. So be comforted with that. Um, God hasn't been compelled to use the same kind of methods with you that, that he does with me. And secondly, uh, the second thing I wanted to say is that often people say, I have a daughter who is exactly like you were. I have a son, I have a friend, I have a sister. I have a mother who's just the way you were. Pray for her. Is there hope? I want you to take from my story that, that affirmation that if God could reach me, he could reach anybody. If God could reach me, the most stubborn and hard-headed person you can think of, he'll be able to reach them too. So I never give up praying for the, the people who insult Christianity. I never give that up. Look at St. Paul. God is able to knock people off the horse on the road to Damascus. If there's somebody that you have in your heart, and I think everybody has somebody that used to be in the church and that has wandered far away tonight and is not with the Lord tonight, as you pray for that person, I just want to pledge my prayers alongside yours. I pray for unbelievers so constantly, and I wish there were more ways to reach them and to bring them back to the Lord. Um, take comfort from my story that if God could reach me, he can reach anybody. He is able to, as the psalm says, you know, by my God, I can leap over a wall, no matter what kind of walls we put up. He can leap over that wall. Every conversion is ultimately an inside job. It's the Holy Spirit inside the heart that meets up with the witness of the Holy Spirit on the outside. So perhaps God is going to use you in this person's life by, you know, recommending they read something. Or Don't let it be a burden to you, though. If, it, if you're thinking, oh, here comes Thanksgiving, here comes Christmas, and I'm going to see this relative again, and should I say something, and what should I say? Um, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So if you feel a, a terrible, anxious burden about it, that's probably not the burden he's given you, because his burden will be light and easy to bear. Um, for that person, just pray for them. When you're in their presence, pray intensely for them, because I, I just believe the Holy Spirit comes rolling out of your heart in giant waves, and it affects them in ways that they are unprepared to resist and that they may not be aware of. It may hit them weeks later or months later. Just keep praying for them, especially when you're in their presence. And um, take courage from my story, as I said. He can reach anybody if he can reach me. So that was the part of my story that is um, east to west, and now west to east. <clears throat> um, so we finished seminary. My husband and I came more and more into um, the, the classic Christian faith, more and more into an evangelical kind of faith. There was an evangelical and charismatic revival going on at the time in the Episcopal Church, and we were part of that. 
So it didn't take too long before my husband gave up his Bultmann and his German theologians and the demythologizers and began to embrace classic Christian religion, the classic faith, and then decided that he did want to be a pastor. So we didn't even have that on the horizon when we first started going to seminary. I went to seminary with him, and um, they were just at the point of approving women's ordination. And I wanted to be a priest. So that was our plan, was that we would both be ordained, and then we would be like co-pastors, and we would share a church between us. But women's ordination was still so new that we couldn't find a bishop that was willing to have a married couple. Um, he would like ordain one or the other, but they felt like a marriage couldn't stand that kind of stress, so you can't both be. So I was pregnant with our first child, and uh, we decided my husband would go ahead, he would get ordained, he would get put in the parish, and then a few years later, when people had you know, warmed up a little bit more, then I would get ordained too, and we would take it from there. But um, what happened was that I, my husband became a pastor, and I had that front row seat on what the life of a pastor is like for a while. And as I saw it, I decided, this is, this is a hard job. I don't want this job. <laughs> Be merciful to your pastor is my point. Um, people just don't know. I mean, you know your own history with the pastor and what troubles you bring to him and what family things are going on. But you don't know that every other family in the church is somebody's calling him at midnight, you know, with some distress. Or he knows so many things that, that you don't know, and he has to keep that in his heart, has to keep that, those confidences. It's a very hard job, so I just always want to put a push in for support your priest, be good to your priest, and for your, your modishka, your presbyteris, support her as well. It's uh, not an easy life, but it's a very rewarding life. I would never change it for anything else. So I wasn't ordained. I taught a lot of Bible studies. I um, had a natural childbirth with my first baby, and I loved it, and I had two more natural births. And the last one, the one that's now a priest, an Orthodox priest, he was born at home. I had one home birth out of the three. And I became a natural childbirth teacher. So I was doing these sort of things, being a mom and, and teaching childbirth classes. And uh, you know, my husband was, was being a pastor, first an assistant, and then moved to a church where he was the, the head pastor. And as time went by, we saw that the Episcopal Church was changing in ways that concerned us, that worried us. At this time, this is like the 80s, it wasn't the, <clears throat> the social issues, it was the theological issues. It was the bishops who were writing books that said Jesus didn't rise from the dead or Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. They were questioning everything in the Nicene Creed. They were just taking the creed apart. I had a friend who had a t-shirt printed that said, have a Nicene day, have a Nicene day. We still believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Um, we saw that the Episcopal Church is kind of going off the rails and weren't really sure what to do about that. We had a, we had a difference of opinion. Um, there, there are different kinds of marriages. Some marriages are opposites attract, and some marriages are birds of a feather or peas in a pod. And my, my husband and I, we were like peas in a pod. We almost always agree about everything. We just have the same taste and the same ideas. We're really, you know, if you've seen one, you've seen the other. Um, we are very much alike. 
And this was one of the few times in our life where we really had a deep disagreement because he felt like the church is becoming a dangerous place to raise children. And we don't want our kids to grow up and move away and go to the closest Episcopal church and lose their faith. So we need to get out now and get find another church where the faith is not being questioned, where the ancient faith is still taught. And I felt like God has put us here in this particular church, St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Ellicott City, Maryland. We believe that we were called here when we came here. Why do we think we're free to go? You know, isn't that kind of selfish? Just to, I don't like the way things are going, I'm gonna go. Maybe we're supposed to stay. I kept saying, because I had no illusions about what was happening in the church, I said that it's going down like the Titanic, but God needed chaplains on the Titanic. And so maybe we're supposed to stay on the boat while it goes down for the sake of this congregation and the people that we love. Maybe we're supposed to stay here for them. So we were kind of in a deadlock. And uh, he kept looking around, where kept, should we be Catholic? But then there were theological problems that we... And, and in time, we saw that there was really a lot of theological revisionism that was very similar that, to what was going on among the Episcopalians. We thought maybe we'll go to one of the Anglican churches, but that wasn't really a, much of an option at the time. There were like a couple of organizations that were conservative Episcopal organizations, but there really wasn't continuing Anglican churches as there is now. So my husband said, I can't go out from a, you know, from a branch to a twig to a leaf. I want to get back to the core. I want to get back to the roots again. We didn't really know what else to what other options there were. So we spent some time just, you know, feeling kind of unsettled and me saying, maybe we're not supposed to go. Maybe we're supposed to stay here. <clears throat> One day my husband got a call. I think it was 1989. He got a call from um, a friend of his who was a Lutheran pastor. And the pastor said, um, I'm inviting some of my other friends that are pastors to come to my house we're just going to sit around the dining room table and talk. There's a priest in town who's an Orthodox priest, and he's going to talk about the Orthodox Church. Having grown up in Charleston, South Carolina, there was just one Orthodox Church. It's the Greek Orthodox Holy Trinity Church. And our impression growing up was it wasn't a church you could join. It was like you had to be born into it. You had to be born Greek if you were going to go to church there. Never would have crossed our minds that a person could voluntarily enter the Orthodox Church. Um, so he said, come over on Tuesday night and we'll just sit around and talk. What's the guy's name? Father Peter Gilquist. So um, you can kind of write the rest of the story right there. The most persuasive voice for orthodoxy um, for so many years. A very gifted evangelist when he, was a, um, when he was an evangelical and just brought those gifts right into orthodoxy. So my husband went and he had the conversation and um, when he came home, he said, I liked what he said because when I would ask him questions about what is the orthodox theological position on this, X, Y, Z, um, he didn't tell me what he thought. He said, well, this is what St. John Chrysostom says. This is what Athanasius says. And, and then he would weave it back into the scripture and he would show the continuity from the scriptures to the, the church fathers. And it wasn't like, I'm this great preacher and listen to my ideas. So that impressed him. Um, but Father Peter said of all the pastors there that night that he thought my husband was the only one that would never become Orthodox. 
because he asked such challenging questions. But we were at that point, especially he was, he just, he felt so much that he needed to go for our children's sake. And he was, the questions were very urgent uh, evidence of, um, of, of how hard this was, uh, how much concern he had about this and how desperate he was to find, find the way. So um, Father Peter told my husband, now if you go back to 89, there's, there's really hardly any books about orthodoxy. There is Metropolitan Callistosis, the Orthodox Church, which was first published in 63, 1963. It's just amazing. I would love to have a book in print that long. It's a wonderful thing. There is that, and there are a couple of books by Schmemann, but hardly anything else and no internet. So there's not really any way to learn about it. Um, so Father Peter told my husband, you should go to a church service. Just go to worship. You know, that's the next thing you need to do. And um, go to Vespers, because, of course, he, my husband was busy on Sunday morning. Um, but Father Peter says a lot of Orthodox churches have a Saturday night Vespers service, so you can just, you know, stick your toe in and see what it's like. So my husband did. He went to Saturday night Vespers, and he came back, and he was glowing. And he was saying, this is so beautiful. This is so wonderful. This is... This is the real church. This is the true church. I have to be part of this church. This is just the greatest thing. And um, he totally fell in love just going to Vespers one time. And he ne never varied after that. He was just determined to be Orthodox ever from that moment. So I said, well, that's quite a reaction. Um, all right, next Saturday I'll go with you. We'll see what it's like. And um, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> You know, and again, we like we usually agreed on everything. Um, these are I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs from my book uh, Facing East. <clears throat> he was an Episcopal priest, but he was standing in an Orthodox church this Saturday night and thinking about truth with a capital T. At the altar, a gold-robed priest strode back and forth, swinging incense, moving in and out of the doors of the iconostasis according to rubrics that were as yet unfamiliar. Golden bells chimed against the censer, and the light was smoky and dim. Over to the left, a small choir was singing in haunting harmony, voices twining in a cappella simplicity. The truth part was this. The ancient words of this vesperal service had been chanted for more than a millennium. Lex orandi, lex credendi. That's Latin, that means um, it's a saying that what people pray is going to shape what they believe. The law of prayer is the law of faith. What people pray shapes what they believe. This was a church that had never and could never apostatize. She was his wife, and she was standing next to him, thinking about her feet. They hurt. She wondered why they had pews if you have to stand up all the time. The struggling choir was weak, and singing in an unintelligible language that may have been English. The few other worshipers weren't participating in the service in any visible way. This bothered me so much as an evangelical, because I thought, you know, you're singing and you're smiling and you're, you know, leaning from side to side and beaming. And, you know, and the, and the Orthodox were like this. <laughs> well, they're not praying. <laughs> Look at that. They come to church. They don't even pray while they're here. You know, I had this totally, well, 
it was annoying how <laughs> the worshipers weren't participating in the service in any visible way. Why did they hide the altar behind a wall? It was annoying how the priest kept popping in and out of the doors, like, <laughs> like a figure on a Swiss clock. The service dragged on following no discernible pattern and it was interminable. Once the priest had said, let us conclude our evening prayer to the Lord. <laughs> she checked her watch again, that was 10 minutes ago, and still no end in sight. <laughs> so, so we had a very uncharacteristic deep division about orthodoxy. And he never faltered, you know. I think it was another maybe two years before we, I even really began to approach orthodoxy. But he never stopped saying, this is the true church, this is the church I have to be in. Um, he finally said, um, if, I, if I couldn't be a priest, if I just had to find a job selling shoes or something, I would still want to be orthodox. And I knew that he was born to be a pastor. He was a born pastor, and if he would be willing to give that up. I could see how profoundly he was impacted by orthodoxy, and I could see the intensity of his commitment, but I couldn't see orthodoxy. It just continued to be weird and foreign and dark in here, and just I just didn't get it at all. I was totally evangelical. Um, this is something I've seen so many times that it's not 100% of the time, maybe 80% of the time, if a couple is advancing toward orthodoxy and one of them wants to be chrismated and the other doesn't, about 80% of the time it's the husband who wants to be orthodox and the wife who is resistant or doesn't understand it. I, I think this is because in the West, Christianity has become very much focused on the worshiper, you know, especially in evangelicalism. It's all that, you know, throw out last week's worship and bring in some new kind of worship we're just trying to reel in the young people. We're trying to call them back. We're trying to make worship that's appealing to them, that's you know dumbed down to their level and that will be entertaining. And orthodoxy just doesn't care about that. <laughs> um, a pastor told me once, a woman said to him after service, um, I just didn't get anything out of worship today. And he said, that's fine. I wasn't doing it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I puzzled for quite a while about what is different about, about Orthodox worship. I kept feeling like, is it, is it more casual? You know, and I knew that couldn't be it, because look at all the ceremony and the vestments and all, but there was something like that. And it took me years to figure out, it's that it's not self-conscious. It's every other kind, Catholic, Protestant, high church, low church, liberal, conservative, there's this self-consciousness, like we're on stage and we're doing this performance so the people in the pews will keep coming back, so they'll come deeper into faith. So something, but it's aimed at them. It's not turn your back on the people and face east. The Lord said, I'm going to come like the east to the west, like the lightning that flashes, so we face east, yearning to see him. We are so dedicated to the Lord. So it's, it's not self-conscious like, oops, you know, I did something wrong and it's like dead air on the radio or something. It's just, if you make a mistake, you just keep going. 
it's like friends getting together to work on a project, like building a barn or something. You know, it's, it's important, it's serious, it's hard, and you need to do it as well as you can. But if you drop your hammer, you climb down and pick it up and go back up again. It's not, not like this terrible, embarrassing thing that happened. So um, I think that that's the thing that men can understand more easily than women can, being very general. Obviously, that's not always the case, but I know that as an evangelical, I felt like worship and everything else was aimed at me. It was all about how much Jesus is thinking about me right now and how cute Jesus thinks I am. And just, you know, Jesus is, is worshiping and adoring me, and that was fine with me because that's how I thought things ought to be. And when <laughs> Orthodoxy wasn't like that. So um, I just didn't get it for a long time. Mm. We kept going back and forth about it, and I kept pulling out this, this thing of mine about Maybe we're just supposed to stay here. God needed chaplains on the Titanic. And one time my husband came up to me and said, you know what God needed on the Titanic? Lifeboats. He said, there's a ship over there that is not sinking. The Orthodox Church is not sinking. The best thing we can do for these people is get them into the lifeboats and get them over to the other ship. And I thought, that's, that's it. I said, you got me. That was, <laughs> I'm out. That was all I had. That was my best shot. So, <laughs> so I did, um, I, I finally said, I still don't like it. I don't understand it. I don't understand why you like it. But I trust you. I see that you can see something that I don't see. But I believe you do see it. I believe you see something that is good and that is compelling and that is worthy of the love that you have for it. So I'm going to follow you until I see it. I will, I will see you and I will stay behind you and we'll just keep going. So I agreed to be chrismated. It was a real division in, in our household because my daughter and I were the two who didn't really want to be Orthodox and my husband and the two sons were like gung-ho. It's the toughness of Orthodoxy. I think it's the same thing that makes men want to join the Marines. You know, it's like this is going to be really hard and we're going to do it all together and we're going to prove ourselves and um, it's just not the kind of thing. You put, put a group of women in a room and come back a year later and they will never have decided to dress alike and march in straight lines back and forth, you know, just never. Um, they, they will have found a lot of different ways to do each other's hair. But, but, you know, there's just something about orthodoxy that appeals to men more than it does women right off the bat. Um, but our, the day we were chrismated, my daughter and I both fell in love with orthodoxy. I, I, I always like to say chrismation really is a sacrament. The Holy Spirit is present in chrismation. And I believe that, that the Holy Spirit rewarded our willingness to go along and our willingness to trust you know, what the dad, what the husband was doing, to trust that he did have a vision that we couldn't, we didn't have, but we trusted him. And um, that morning, it was just such a beautiful service, and we were so knocked out by it. I just didn't want it to end. I just wanted that worship to go on and on and on. And uh, as we were driving home, my daughter said, I wish we could just go to the mall, and I want to walk around and tell people I'm orthodox. <laughs> So, um, 
Fast forward, um, we founded a little church in 1993 in Baltimore called Holy Cross. And it, it grew and it grew and it thrived and it's beautiful. Um, my husband retired from there about a year ago now. And uh, we went back to visit not too long ago. It's a small building. It can comfortably hold about 150. And at Pasca, it gets over 200. And it's not comfortable, but you know, we can all be in there. And uh, what they tell me, 73 members of the church are below the age of 20, and they're 20 below the age of two. It's, it's so young, and so many young people, and young marrieds, and so many pregnancies. You know, over and over again, we have the young women and their husbands come forward and pray over them every time there's a new pregnancy. Um, it's just thriving. It's a church that's doing so well. We did retire, and our son Stephen is pastor of a Greek Orthodox church in the little town of Bluffs, Bluff City, Bluff City um, in Tennessee. And we live in the next town down, Johnson City. It, this is a, a church you might have heard of about six years ago, because it went around the internet, that in this town there was a Greek Orthodox church that had a parish hall um, that they were worshiping in. They had a building, they had land, but they didn't have a priest. They didn't have enough um, income to hire a priest. And there was an Antiochian church that was able to hire a priest, our son, but they didn't have a building. They were in an industrial park. So Metropolitan Alexios, the Greek Orthodox Metropolitan of Atlanta, contacted Bishop Antun, the Antiochian Bishop of the South, and proposed that they merge the two congregations. And so that's what they did. They, they merged it, it's six years now. It's doing really well. My, husband, my son had only been pastor of the Antiochian congregation for one year when they did this. He was 31 years old. And when I heard they were going to do this, I said, he's a baby, he can't do this. He doesn't know anything. And you know, I had total lack of mom confidence. <laughs> you know, I'm still picturing as being that little kid who's trying to see if he can do a standing jump into a garbage can. <laughs> Things you see when you just look at, what's that noise, what? Um, so it turned out very well, though. So they, yeah, they gave the church a new name. They started over as a new congregation, and it's been going very well for six years now. Um, our son David is a um, subdeacon, just ordained a subdeacon in uh, the beginning of June, and he's at an Antiochian parish outside of Atlanta. And his son, my first grandchild, just went off to Jordanville to seminary. So the, um, you know, the Orthodox faith continues to take root in another generation and another generation. Um, so just to sum up that, like we started out saying, the Holy Spirit blowing through human history, you can see the story. It'll be so beautiful to read the whole story of Holy Cross Church when we get to heaven and we can turn the, the endless Bible to those pages and read again all those wonderful things. We talked a little earlier at the start about the saints, you know, the saints that are on the walls that are, you know, this is what we're called to be. We are called to be saints as well. And um, there's, a, there's an old sermon illustration about a pastor asked a little girl, um, what is a saint? <clears throat> and she thought about the stained glass windows in her church. And she said, a saint is somebody that the light shines through. 
say to somebody that the light shines through. Um, so I, I think most people don't really think of themselves as saint material, you know? You think being a saint is for someone else, but God doesn't have anything except ordinary people to make saints out of. You are the only raw material that God has for making saints. So I, I think it's a tragedy to think small about this. You should believe that God is capable of making you a saint. And um, even if you're never recognized as a saint, if you're not famous and people don't sing troparia to you, you can privately be a saint. You can yearn to be used as a saint, to become a light-bearing saint. There's so many saints that the church does not know the name of, but we will know them in heaven. We will know that they are, that they are saints of God. So I always want to close just by urging people, don't think small. You know, don't think, oh, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. Because you're called to be part of that company. I like to um, think of saints as being like, like every person is a little glass lantern. And the light inside is the same light. It's always the light of Christ. But the glass is a slightly different color. Every person that's ever lived, billions and billions, it's a slightly different color. And nobody can take your place. If you fail to be a saint, then all of us in the kingdom of heaven will be eternally deprived of the shade of the radiance that you were supposed to bring. No one else can do that for you. You are the only one that bears that particular shade. It's the same light within all of us, but it's up to you to make yourself into a light-bearing saint so that we will have that, that beautiful color when we're all in heaven together. I'm going to close by just reading a few verses uh, from the book of Hebrews. This is one of my very favorite scriptures. I think we read it twice in the course of the church year. And uh, it's a story of the, it's a description of the company of the saints. Of course, they're Old Testament saints when somebody's writing in the New Testament. And as you listen to this passage, you'll hear, as it goes through the names, starts naming famous people, and um, at first it's all stories of fame and victory and success, and then it turns and it begins to be stories about people who suffered, some people who were failures in the eyes of the world, some people who lost everything. And yet those lives are just as much a part of the story that it doesn't really matter to God. It doesn't matter if you look like a big success in life or not. Faithfulness is what matters, that you faithfully do what God has called you to do. And if the world rejects you, then that does not exclude you from being a saint. How many people here on our walls and on our iconostasis were rejected in their lifetimes? All of our lives are part of this big story. And in the um, in the endless Bible that we see when we finally get to heaven, this paragraph will go on and on and on. It'll be the list of all the names. So live a life so that your story will be included here, that your name will be included in the expanded version of this text that we get to read in heaven. So this is Hebrews 11.32 to 12.2. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions,
quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering over deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Thank you. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus. <laughs> Father, do you want to... You want to close up, or you want to do some no, Q&A? There's not much to say. Um, would you like to do a little Q&A? You have enough stamina for that? I think so, yeah. Okay, so we'll do a little bit of Q&A. I'll grab the microphone and walk around here. Mm -hmm. And um, I can repeat it if, it if it's not loud enough. I, I don't know how, what time. What time is it? Are we? 8.30? Okay. I know many of you get up early today to go to work. If you need to leave, feel free to leave. I'm, I'm not going to be hurt. <laughs> yes. Hello, Matushka. My name Hi. is Anna. I'm with Hi, Holy yes. Apostles in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in knowing if uh, God ever spoke to you again in that voice inside. or, or, or We all have a little bit of it, but something yeah. significant. Yes, to, uh, the question was, did God ever speak to me again? Yes, yes, many times. I give the credit to the Jesus Prayer. It has really helped me to be able to discern the voice of God. I'm so blessed. I've seen so many miracles. While I was still a liberal, you know, starting out in seminary, I came to, came to class one day and I'd wrenched my neck in my sleep and another classmate laid her hand on it and it was instantly healed. And the doctor told me it would be a couple of weeks. So. Things like that have happened to me so many times. Um, I've, I've often felt the direction of, of the Holy Spirit, you know, and I think many of us do. You'll get this, like, nudge, like you should go in this door or something. Um, I, I think, as a matter of fact, that we need to, we all, all of us need to get better at telling those stories because we see how much hunger there is for the supernatural. We see so many young people being fascinated by stories of exorcisms, haunted houses. It's, it's like they're looking for some evidence that there is a supernatural level to life. And what they're looking for, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And I think if we can develop the, the little stories of things that have happened to us, maybe it's better if they're not really extravagant stories. If it's something kind of mundane but sweet and small, um, then the person you're talking to might be able to imagine that happening to them. That's really the next thing I'm working on. I'm going to write a, um, an autobiography or a memoir to go through my whole life and just talk about all the times that 
I felt like God spoke to me or I saw a miracle or something. And I'm really urging people, get better at telling your own stories because I do believe that Christians are going to face a hard time, that we're going to see increasing dislike of Christians and um, rejection. And we're not going to be able to fantasize about we're going to make a movie that tells the story that's going to convert people. Look, if the passion of the Christ did not cause mass conversions, there's no Christian movie that's ever going to do it. Um, there, you know, we need to you know, influence people in this way or that or be clever. And you know, I think we're going to be reduced to the humility of just telling our story to one other person. And <clears throat> boy, that can catch fire. You can, God can do you know, conversions like firecrackers going off all over the place. Um, yeah, I could go on and on about that. But yeah, that's kind of the latest thing I'm working on is um, after many years, 20, 30 years as a writer and so much of that thinking, I will find a way that I can present Christianity in the public square that will be persuasive and just gradually realizing, no, <laughs> it's Christianity they object to. You know, it doesn't matter how clever or funny you make it. When you get to the part about Jesus, that's when they reject it. Um, that the, the early Christians couldn't do anything in the public arena except die. And uh, that we may be called to do that, but in the interim, maybe we're just going to be called to be embarrassed and humiliated and insulted and misrepresented. They died with so much grace that they drew the whole world to Jesus Christ. And may we learn to do the small amount of suffering we may be called to. May we do it as well as they did theirs and let the Holy Spirit draw people to the Lord. That was, a, I'm sorry, a long answer to a short question. <laughs> Anybody else went up here? Thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. Um, I know that Father George Calcio was your spiritual father, yeah. and I was just wondering if you could share with us um, just some of the, what, what he left with you, what he gave you that has helped you so much in your own life. Mm. Um, if there's just a couple things, one yeah, thing, yeah. I don't know. She's asking me about uh, Father George Calcio, who was my spiritual father until his repose in 2006. What a privilege it was to know him. And many of you may not have heard him, heard of him. Um, Father George Kelchu is the last name, and it's an unusual name. It means calcium, and it's spelled like calcium without the M, Kelchu. A uh, Romanian who was, um, when he was 22, I think he was, in his native Romanian Bucharest, he was swept up in a mass arrest. Uh, the communists were trying to seize all the young men the promising young men between 18 and 23, and imprison them and put them through brainwashing. And the idea was that they would destroy their personality, break them down completely, and then rebuild them as the ideal communist man. And Father George um, was, a, was a medical student, and he was arrested and put through this process. A lot of torture, a lot of um, being tortured so you would say things you knew weren't true, like tortured so you'll say, I don't love my mother. I don't believe in God. Um, just trying to make cracks in the psyche because you're saying things you don't believe. Um, he said the worst was when you were required to torture someone else. That that was what finally broke your sense of who you were as a human being. 
Um, but for him, it actually made him a more committed Christian, a more courageous Christian during his imprisonment. And when he was released, he just preached in a challenging way and ended up being imprisoned again and finally was freed and came to America in 1985, I think it was. I was very privileged to know him, and um, he meant so much to me. And uh, I, I think one of the things that, um, gosh, there's so many little things I could say. The thing that was most impressive about him was his smile. That he was, he was a, a short guy, not much taller than I am, and he had this beaming smile all the time. He was such a happy person. He was readily amused at things. He found a lot of, a lot of humor in life. He was so indomitable. I, I said he's like a little lion. I always thought of him as my little lion because he was so brave and so, so strong. And um, that smile, he told me once he was the youngest of 11 children and he was his mother's favorite. And I, I thought, um, that smile, it hit me once that what I was seeing was his mother's smile, that he was reflecting the smile he saw when she looked into the cradle. And how that smile and her profound faith, she was a saint herself, what it had implanted in him as an infant gave him the strength to do what he did in surviving prison and being an example of, of Christian fortitude and faith for the rest of his life. I think that's good for us moms to know because you might feel like, what am I doing to change the world? I'm home every day changing diapers. You know, what, how is this helping? But the face that your child sees smiling at him or at her is, is planting such deep memories, things they'll never forget, even if they don't remember them consciously. And if your child is in a situation where they're being tortured into denying their faith, that that planted inside of them will give them strength. So never underestimate your work as a mom. You don't know what your child's path will lead to. It may lead into very challenging times. But just keep loving them, keep planting your love inside of them, and that will take them very far, as it did for Father George. Yeah. Anything else? Just went on the way back there? Not quite the way back, middle back. <clears throat> you reflected in, when you talked about your early life that you were a feminist and I would just love you to talk a little bit about how your ideas of feminism have changed throughout the years mm -hmm. yeah I was a, I, when I went to college in 1970 um, the women's lib movement at the time was very new and it was still just working it itself out um, it was strange that abortion became the, like the preeminent cause because at the beginning it was a lot of different things and I remember especially being um, concerned about the way that images of women's bodies were being used in advertising. I didn't like that women were used as sex objects to sell toothpaste or things that were totally irrelevant. And um, you know, people who think that feminists took over the world and control everything you can see that that was a battle we didn't win. You know, that's no change with that whatsoever. Um, I think that abortion kind of took over because it was concrete. Everything else is just hard to tell if you're making any difference. Change attitudes, you know, how do you tell if you're changing attitudes? But this was like, this is a political goal and we can see if we're getting closer every day. Um, so I, it wasn't 
I guess it was 1976, so I hadn't been a feminist very long, when um, I read an article that described an abortion and it turned me completely around. And that kind of was like a first crack in my feeling of unity with other feminists. I also noticed that when I, when I hung around with feminists and I talked about feminism and I read a lot of feminism stuff, I just got really angry. I was going around angry all the time and I was really suspicious of men and I thought men were insulting me when they weren't. And I realized it just was bad for me. It was just, it just wasn't good for me to do that. So I, I took a break for a while. The other thing was I was a Mother Earth type hippie. And as I saw, um, you know, I was part of that, that whole phase of hippiness where you're going to um, drop out and live on a farm and, you know, not be part of the rat race. And then there were women who, for whom feminism meant getting ahead in the rat race and getting the important jobs and getting the bigger salary. And it was like there was a split in feminism. And of course, the Mother Earth feminists just vanished. You know, and every, all the interest was in the high achievement feminism. So there were things I saw where the, the movement was kind of separating from where I wanted to go. I was vice president of an organization, a pro-life organization called Feminists for Life for a time. So I was representing the secular feminist case against abortion. And at that time when people said, what to find feminist, I would say it's anybody, it was Gloria Steinem's definition, anybody who believes in the full equality of men and women. But I realized that um, that was not the working definition most people had. Um, for most people, the word meant some other things than that. And um, it, it might sound quirky, but I felt like, well, I'm being dishonest then. I'm using a word that has a private meaning for me. And I'm a writer, and words are my tools. And this amounts to spoiling my tools, to use a word with a meaning that readers don't understand. Um, I need to use words accurately. So if I can't say I'm what you think a feminist is, I need to stop using that, that term. So I retired from Feminist for Life at that point. It was, it was kind of a quirky decision, I think, but I, I felt strongly about it. I felt like this, it, it's not, you can't use the word just because you can work out a way that it means what you think it does. Like, uh, like Humpty Dumpty and Alice Through the Looking Glass. You know, he says, I, when I make a word do double duty like that, I pay it extra. When they come around on Saturday night for his, for his pay, I pay extra for using it in a, a different way. So, yeah, that was it. It was a, a quick plunge in and kind of a slow going out again. Is there maybe just one more? We don't want to stay too late. Yeah. So you have three children who it sounds like are still in the church. I mean, obviously you've got clergy. Um, do you have any advice? I'm a mother of two teenagers. And um, do you have any advice for all of us, not just parents of teenagers, but all of us in the church, how to keep our young people engaged and to stay in the church? How to keep your young people engaged and to, to stay in the church. I, I find that to be... A difficult thing, and a lot of times it, it's something mysterious inside the child themselves. Um, <clears throat> that we did, we raised our three kids all alike, and you know, so many parents say that looking back, I raised my kids alike and they turned out differently. And um, as a matter of fact, my, our daughter, Megan, um, 
you know, I mentioned my two sons, there's a subdeacon and a priest and a rising priest, um, but our daughter is Unitarian. She's a Unitarian pastor, and she's married to a woman. So I haven't talked about this a lot, but I'm, I'm beginning to talk about it publicly. Um, she's pastor of a Unitarian church just south of Cleveland. And we have a very good relationship with her, and um, as she says, we believe incompatible things. The things she believes, the things we believe, is just they're, they're incompatible. But we're able to love each other and, and enjoy each other and wish the best to each other. Why did she turn out different from the others? I, I don't know. I, I feel like as I look back through their lives back into their teens, it was like she was always a little bit more susceptible to things taking her attention away from the church. And the boys always seemed to have a very firm sense of being grounded in the faith. And I don't think there was something that I gave to them that I didn't give to her. It was, it's puzzling, but it seems to me like there was something inside of each of those three people that disposed them to follow the way they did. And I also feel like the story's not over. Um, so you just keep praying about it. And, you know, if I, if I repose and my daughter's still a Unitarian pastor, I am going to bug her. <laughs> <laughs> She will, she will get no rest. I'm going to be just bugging her all the time. <laughs> so, just sometimes the way is rocky. There certainly were rocky times with our daughter, Megan. Um, but this, the story isn't over till it's over. So, perhaps it's never over, at least not during our lifetime. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for staying late. I hope I'll see most of you tomorrow. Thank you. We have a small reception next door, so please come next door. Please rise for prayer.